Welcome to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast. Today, Joel and I finish up this three podcast series on Christian Miller's book, The Character Cap. We talk about how acting only on desires for states of affairs is perhaps the very nature of vice, offer what we think is perhaps the ideal way to grow and live in virtuous character, and offer some disagreement or perhaps a desire for development of some of Miller's approach to character development. In the process, we talk about Joel's parenting, why the love of money is the root of all evil, a bit of Plato's Republic, some David Foster Wallace, and any number of disordered topics in a podcast about order of desires. Wondering Toward Wisdom is a part of the Tactical Faith Podcast Network. Check out tacticalfaith.com for our other podcast, TF Radio, as well as blogs, info about us, and ways to contact and support us. If you'd like to contact me and Joel directly, tweet us at Wondering Wisdom or email us at wondering at tacticalfaith.com. And in both those cases, there's an underscore where the A or the O would be in Wondering. Enjoy. Welcome back to the podcast. Last week, we talked about desires and a desire fulfillment. And we, we got into this, the recognition that we have desires in our lives, the, these big desires that don't reach fulfillment through states of affairs. Rather, they're an ongoing thing that, that we're never completely satisfied. I mean, we, we're, we're happy, but there's always more that we're, we're wanting, more that we're striving for, and that these are the kinds of desires that we have when we talk about desiring virtue, when we talk about desiring character, that we recognize these goods that we we want that we desire that we we work towards that are never completely fulfilled we we realize that there's more going on and so this ties well into the the question of how do we become better people how do we become more virtuous how do we how do we work towards these desires in a meaningful way that doesn't just reduce them to states of affairs. What what's going on when we say I I want my character to improve. I desire for my character to improve and 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 meaningful steps for us to to make that happen. Now remember we're we're still talking about this in in the framework of the book The Character Gap by Dr. Christian Miller who was on the podcast a few weeks ago and and I think this is going to be our wrap up episode on on the book, but we might find we have even more to say. But uh, this is this is our third episode discussing the book. Again, we encourage you to go out and check this book out for yourself. There's a lot of good content in it. He makes a lot of uh, interesting claims and, and offers some uh, interesting evidence to support those claims. And um, Today we're going to focus on some of the stuff he talks about in the third part of the book where he talks about how do we actually improve our character. So building from desires and and remember, you know, Travis asked this question when we interviewed Dr. Miller about desire fulfillment, about virtue as desire fulfillment and you know, Dr. Miller answered, you know, it's it doesn't work, you know, that's not how he sees virtue working with desire fulfillment, but we we're pretty sure that he was talking in terms of that states of affairs, taking what he says and and coupling it with this I, this grander vision of of desire that we've been talking about. How do we become better people, Travis? Uh, well, I don't. So um, follow. Don't follow my lead. 
Uh, no, but this. So thanks for listening, and <laughs> <laughs> good luck out there. I think the way that we normally think about becoming better people. So let's talk. Let's talk about the w- the way that we normally think about it. So to become a better person, you know, you initially start off by being punished for doing bad things, and as we grow up, we become more. Um, we become a little more nuanced, and we just, you know, get punished for doing bad things in different ways. And then as we get really thoughtful and we enter the spiritual world, we get punished for doing bad things in the afterlife. We're sort of stuck in a rut, right? You get punished for doing bad things, and that will make you associate the punishment with the with the thing with the bad thing you're desiring, and therefore you become better. But this is again tied to the idea that what fulfills me is the acquisition of a state of affairs or the, or the coming about of a state of affairs that in which the world accommodates itself to my desires. And we use punishment and reward to try to kind of direct those things. But we don't think that that, I think virtue is actually connected to developing the desires that are not that, that encompass those, but they, they deal with what we talked about. Uh, they deal that things like friendship that deal with the problem of the Schopen, Schopenhauer's problem of evil, as well as the disintegrative nature of fragmented desires that are all aiming different directions. And so the problem isn't that we should desire a different state of affairs than what we presently do, but that entire, that what we're doing, generally speaking, is wrong. So, for example, Joel, Joel last time talked about health. The problem isn't that you desire to eat ice cream. If, you ha- if you're at all a rational human being, you desire to eat ice cream. The problem is that you keep allowing the desire for the state of affairs, I am eating ice cream, to overwhelm your other desires, which are longer term sorts of desires. So the desire for health, the desire to be able to, I don't know, run, run, a, run a marathon or be able to do certain sort, sorts of things when you get older and to be healthy when you're, when you have grandkids and all this kind of stuff. That the fact that you want this, that this particular state of affairs is right before you, the possibility of it is right before you. And so you go and reach out and take it at the detriment of these other, of this longer term desire to do and be a particular way. That's where the problem lies. And so, um, to, and we generally think, okay, well, what I need to do is I need to punish myself for eating ice cream and reward myself for being healthy, in which case, and that's maybe not a, I mean, it's not, that's not a bad thing to do necessarily, but it's still what reward and punishment do is they adjust your mind from one state of affairs to another state of affairs. I'm not going to eat ice cream because then I have to like, I don't know, put rocks in my shoes and flagellate myself for 20 minutes like Martin Luther did before he, you know, when he was posting theses all over doors. You know, that, that's not really what we're, that's not really what we're aiming for. It's not, you know, it's not the whole, you know, I'm going to be a good person in this life and do a bunch of stuff I don't like so that in the next life I get a bunch of stuff I do like. That whole attitude is off. That What corrupts our character is in large part that we're looking for a particular state of affairs. That's not what we're, I don't think that's what we're called to be, and that's not what fulfills us. And so part of, part of the reason why I asked the, the question uh, to Dr. Miller about why we should be good and how this relates to, to desire fulfillment is that it's unclear why I would want to be good unless it fulfills some of my desires, right? I want to desire to be good. I don't want to just feel like I'm supposed to be good. And then you're forced to be good by threat of punishment. 
But this doesn't even accord with Christianity. Because if you're forgiven, then I don't need to be good. I'm forgiven. Well, and, and and it's also important to note that when we say be good, we're not necessarily subscribing to our own definition. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we see some other definition of of what it means to be good that's contrary to who we are and so we're we're trying to figure out how we can line ourselves up with that other definition uh by our actions and um and and that is only going to get you so far okay so what you mean is i don't see the good as good i see the good as what somebody else tells me is good but i don't in fact desire it i just desire to be called good yeah yes that's what that's, uh, okay yeah i mean you, you know you th- you think of of some of the well i'll speak for myself i'm not going to to assume that you're as bad of a person as i am but i know that there are times that i do things not because i want to do them or i think they're good but i know that someone else is going to think that they're good it's going to make them happy and i want to make them happy you know, it, when my wife doesn't listen, so I can say this, but when we first got married, I folded shirts a different way than I do now, but she had a particular way she wanted them folded. And so even though I didn't think it was necessarily the right way to do it, that's how 15 years later, I'm still folding them because it makes her happy. And, but that's, that's a small thing in the grand scheme of reality, but it, it's something that you know, yeah, I don't necessarily see that as good myself, but someone who uh, I want to make happy sees that as good. And so I do it to make them happy, not because I think that's necessarily good. Right. And and I think that's how we, that's, that's sort of the problem that we have, I think, is that we're not interested in adjusting our, our desires and our view of the good. What we're interested in doing is getting the rewards that that we get for people thinking we're good or for God thinking that we're good. Yes. If we're going to become better, I think part of what needs to happen is we need to start seeing the good as the good. And that sounds really, really simple and really obvious. But what we mean by it is not as a state of affairs in which you acquire the things that you wish. So we need to start readjusting and recognizing where our true desires are. And, and we see this, I mean, you could think of an example where somebody desires a particular state of affairs and that state of affairs that they actually pursue undermines a relationship that they have, an important relationship that they have. They realize the relationship breaks down upon pursuing this state of affairs, but they do it anyway because they desperately want it. So you can think of like, you know, you have a friend and I don't know, let's, you can, you know, maybe your best friend, you know, his, I don't know, think of a classic like TV show or something. Your best friend is, has a girlfriend. You sort of like her, but this is your best friend. And so you, you start dating her, you know, behind his back and suddenly your, your best friendship is broken, you know, broken off. And then you end up breaking up and you can't remember her name anyway, but you just lost something that was deep and meaningful. Now that's a little bit rough because a romantic relationship can be deep and meaningful. Uh, but it could be something like, I don't know, you, you can think of something a little simpler, but there's a particular state of affairs you, you want, it ends up breaking up something that, that is very valuable. And it's in those times that we might recognize that there's value. And so punishment and reward can, can play this role in helping us see value, but punishment and reward are not the goals. 
the goal is the is in this case the relationship, the friendship, the ongoing developed relationship. Uh, the case, uh, and, and and so I think we, we can look at it sort of like this: punishment and reward don't change our view of the particular actions that we're doing. They don't change the view of our desires. I just think so. I have a desire that I that I know I I've been told from the time I'm a child it's an evil desire. Now it looks really beautiful. Like if I could get that state of affairs. But I know it's bad. I've been told it's bad. Everybody says it's bad. I see it as good, but everyone says it's bad. So I agree that it's bad, even though I really want it. And so when people aren't watching, sometimes I'll, you know, get as much of it I can, but whatever. But I I desire to be good and I work hard to be good and I and I grunt and push with all of my might to be good. And by that I mean do the thing I don't want to do, give up on the thing I want to do, because I know that after I die. I'll get some sort of reward. That, that's it, kind of a religious perspective. What, what's going on is we, we see the reward as good and we see the punishment as bad, but we don't see the action that leads to the reward as good or the action that leads to the punishment as bad. It's, it's, it's the reward and punishment we see as good and bad, not the actions yeah. themselves. I mean, we'll call them good, but by good, we don't mean something we desire. By good, we right. mean the right thing, which means I hate it. Just like my son hates broccoli. He knows it's good for him, but he don't think it is good. He doesn't think it's good, right? And that's that was what we mean. So it's, it's this external idea of the good. You said somebody else's idea of the good, and that's that's kind of what's going on there. We have this other person's idea of the good. It seems, and this might be pipe dream type stuff, but it seems evident that the the best way to have a steady, virtuous character is that when something is in fact good, you see it as desirable. I, I want to use the word beautiful because the word good is so confused. Because like what you said, right. we yeah. we say it, but we don't we don't feel it's good or we don't mean it as in it's desirable. We see it as the right thing to do, even if I hate it. But we see something like what, and and we we by the way we have examples of this. In fact, Dr. Miller brings it up in his book uh, when he's talking about role models. Uh, when you see someone who is virtuous, you look at it and you're like, "That's that person is awesome," and it's not because they did all the right things and you're you know I don't know you're virtue signaling because you know you're supposed to say this person's a good person. I mean, you might read a biography and you think about them and you think. Or you you watch a movie about them, or whatever, and you're just like, and we see this with like heroes that we have. You see the courage, you see how they overcome suffering, you see how they sacrifice themselves for others. You see any form of excellence, even physical excellence, we look at it and we just automatically admire it. Whether it's physical excellence or character excellence, like virtue, we we admire it. Well, we admire it in other people. But we tend not to admire the things that are required to get there in ourselves. And so we have an element of this already. But can we develop to the point where we see the good as good, the actions that are virtuous as desirable, despite the fact that I have to go through much pain? And if we can get to that point where we see it that way, it seems like our character would be a steadily good character. So you can see something like Jesus for the joy set before him, apparently referencing the crucifixion. That doesn't seem joyful, but there's a, there's a good there that Jesus desired, despite the fact that he desperately didn't want to do it. He still saw it as a good thing. And so if we want our character to be steadily good, it seemed steadily virtuous. It seems like the ideal would be that when we see something that's when we come across 
uh, a situation or an act or whatever. Maybe I should, because that sounds like I'm talking about particular states of affairs and particular discrete actions. I'm talking about broad character, that the actions that are virtuous, we would just naturally desire to do them. Yes. I mean, what one of the, you know, if, if you're, you know, 35 or older, you remember the, the WWJD bracelet phase that modern evangelicalism and modern Christianity in general went through where, you know, everyone wore the bracelets because the bracelets were supposed to help you that when you're in the, in the moment that you can think about what would Jesus do and then do that. And the problem with that is that's still focused on the actions in the moment. It's not focused on the character, on your character. If you have a good character, if you have a Christ-like character, you don't have to stop and think about what would Jesus do because you're reflecting that in, in all your actions. And in fact, a lot of times we act from our character rather than making a specific decision in the heat of a moment because our character is usually going to to override our decision-making mechanism within ourselves. So we focus on that moment of decision when in reality we need to be focusing on preparing ourselves to to naturally do the right thing in that in that moment. Um, we our our character is something that is going to be reflected in the decision in the actions we do, I don't want to say unreflectively or uncritically, but but that are going to be a part of our disposition, just part of the way we we act without much thought. And that's going to come back to how do we see things. So you know, for me, an example, you know, a, a very, you know, base example, uh, you know, I, I love chocolate. And so I don't have to think, hmm, do I want the chocolate or not? Like I see the chocolate. I think it's good. I get the chocolate. I don't, I don't. And, and, you know, there, there, if, if there are M&Ms sitting out, I will sometimes have the M&Ms not just in my hand, but actually have put them in my mouth without even thinking about it because I just see chocolate as good and I want to partake of it. That's, that's how character works. The, the idea is if your character has been formed in the right way or however your character is formed, if it's in the right way or the wrong way, you will sometimes find yourself doing actions that you have not necessarily thought through because that's just how your character comes out. The things that you see as good, the things that you you desire as good, those are the things that you're going to be inclined to do without having to painfully make a decision contrary to that. So this is this is sort of a criticism of part of his book, but it's not necessarily a criticism of his conclusions or anything. It's sort of a maybe it's a it's a desire for the book to take on characteristics that perhaps it can't. That is, there's an element here where, well, I'll just speak. It's, there's an element here where perhaps our very way of life undermines virtue, which mm-hmm. shouldn't sound surprising. And if you're a believer, if you're a Christian believer, that sort of makes sense. I mean, the worldly way of life is not necessarily supportive of Christian virtue. But one of the th- so if if you if you're looking at the section, he's he's uh, at the end at the end of his book, he's talking about, you know. Uh, strategies, strategies for developing virtue. And he has a certain set of conditions 
that, that he sets out. And I think I thought this was, this was this is where the book I mean, the, the entire book has a lot of interesting things. But this this is where it became interesting to me because I started seeing the the, pur- the purpose of the book, uh, which I think is focused on. A, well, let me just let me just get into it. So he, he sets up a few conditions here. And there's two of them that I'm particularly, I wouldn't say uncomfortable with, but I would I would love to see development in these areas. The first is, so he says one of the conditions for strategies that that can develop a virtue. One of them is is a strategy supported by empirical studies, and you can see this throughout the book. His his book isn't some philosopher flying high in abstractions about character and so on and so forth, which maybe we're doing, but actually. It's supported. He offers a bunch of evidence from from psychological empirical studies about the nature of character and what benefits, what helps develop, and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, I think having it have to be supported by empirical studies is sort of like tying one of your hands behind your back, in part. It's and that's partly because I think virtue is not necessarily something that is easily achieved by broad. I want to say this. You have, I don't know, you have, you take 500 people and you all have them carry out a particular sort of activity or do some sort of thing or you, or whatever. And then you see how many people develop character. It doesn't strike me that that's necessarily how it's going to work all the time. Character seems to me to, to be a thing. Like if I think of the people who've had the most positive effect on my own character, the way they related to me was pretty idiosyncratic. It came out in the nature of our, of our particular relationships, the, the particular uh, character that that person had and the particular kind of personality that I had and how they related to me and so on and so forth. Uh, there's other things we could say about that, but what I really wanted to focus on was the fourth one where he says, is the strategy realistic for most of us to adopt given our busy lives? And part of me thinks he's, he's doing, he's doing a good thing here and that he's trying to present a way to help us encourage, encourage uh, the development of virtuous character in a society that is, I'll just come out and say it, the way that we live our lives undermines virtue. And so he's sort of, I think in many ways he's saying, I mean, why are we all so busy? The reason most of us are so busy is because we're living lives far beyond, far, far beyond what is necessary. There is we we need far more money than what we should need. We need far bigger houses than what we need. We we have far better cars and more expensive vehicles than what we need. We have far more clothes and shoes and whatever else we have than what we need. We have far more than what we need of everything. And if you if you know and, anything and, and not and not just material goods, but our activities. We are I mean you, you think about what people say that your kids have to do to get into college and they've got to volunteer 40 hours a week in addition to getting a, you know, straight A, you know, GPA, and then they have to be in five clubs and do three sports. And, you know, th- th- there, there's this, this sense of everything that we're supposed to do taking over our lives and keeping us from being who we're supposed to be. And the aim of all this, and you got Understand, I want my kids to do well and so on and so forth. But the aim of all this is to achieve success in this world so that when you've achieved that success, then you can live the kind of life you want. So I want my children to have opportunity to do what they want. 
But actually, what maybe what I'm doing is training them to not care about things like virtue, to not care about things like like relationships, so, so on and so forth, but to focus on doing the kinds of achievements that will get the world to give them what they want. Which, if that's the case, I'm training them in vice. I'm training them to be vicious people. The word vicious comes from vice. It doesn't necessarily mean they're running around slobbering and trying to eat everybody. It means they are full of vice because the fundamental element of vice is that is that you are, a, at least the way we're describing it, you have this fragmented obsession with states of affairs. And if I'm, achieve, if I'm wanting them to achieve success, it could be that because I want them to have a job that they love and they find meaning in. Absolutely. That's great. If I want them to achieve success because, I don't know, it makes me look good. That's a problem. If I want them to achieve success so they can have lots of money, well, what is money but the but the capacity to make the world accommodate to your desires? That's what money is. That's why First Timothy 6 says the love of money is the root of all evil. That's what it actually says in the Greek. Arguably, it's the power. It's It's a feeling like the power of God to make the world bend itself to my will. That is to become the state the state of affair to offer me the states of affairs that will fulfill me which is why when people get lots of money it doesn't make them happy right i think it's something like uh, what i read elsewhere i've seen elsewhere it's somewhere around you hit about $75,000 any more money you make than that no matter how high you go doesn't make you any happier you need enough money to be able to pay off your debts and to live keeping up with the joneses because apparently that's important to us uh i mean it is it, I mean, and I'm not saying it actually is important. I'm saying it feels important to all, even to me. And so I'm not sure. I feel like in a way Miller is compromising with a group of schmucks. That is us. And then he's saying, listen, I know you're all schmucks. He didn't write this in there. I know you're all <laughs> schmucks. And I know that there's no way I'm going to be able to teach you to be truly virtuous like the heroes about which we speak who devote their lives to important things. So let's see if we can find ways to develop character within the context of you being a bunch of, a bunch of, uh, well, I'll just say schmucks. I'll just stick with the word schmucks. A bunch well, of busy people who are obsessed with busyness and you're like Glaucon. Basically, this is what I feel like. Miller is doing sort of what Socrates did with Glaucon in, in book two of the Republic and really on the rest of the Republic. Socrates started describing what virtue would look like, what the just just person would look like. Glaucon says, that's not right. We need more, 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 more stuff. And Socrates is like, you want more stuff? All right, well, then you can like roast walnuts over the fire. And Glaucon's like, you're not getting me, man. I mean more stuff. We need to live like contemporary modern folk with their couches and their cakes. And Socrates, oh, so you want a just society that's full of the opposite of justice. Okay. Let's see what we can do. Now, I'm going to offer a slightly more charitable interpretation of this. Well, I mean, and, I'm trying to be, I'm, I think that's a charitable, well, well, let, maybe it's, let, maybe it's let, not charitable. I don't know. Let, let, let me, let me, maybe charity isn't the right way to frame it. But if you remember th this book is called the character gap and he's talking about the, the, the character gap is the type of people we are versus the type of people we want to be. And what Travis and I have talked about in the last couple episodes is about seeing the good, about having our, our vision, our perceptions transformed. And we hope the, the hope of some of this, of, of the stuff that we talk about 
is if you start to see the good as the good, you're going to want more of it. And you're going to want more of it. And we got to start somewhere. And so what 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 I what I hope Miller is saying in in this book when he says what can we do within our busyness is he's saying okay here's the first step what are some first steps because if I can get you to take this first step then maybe you're going to see the good enough that you're going to take the second step and the third step and the fourth step and be and and continue to reduce the busyness of everything else that draws you away from the good so that you can can really perceive and be drawn and have your character shaped by the good. Now, he he doesn't say that, but I hope that's what is going on in his mind as as he starts us as he gives that as a criteria for this process. Yeah, I I think that's really good. I I feel like that's actually what Socrates was doing. Really, what Plato was doing when he was writing the Republic, because I think the description of the just person in the Republic, as it's generally described, is not actually what Plato is trying to get at, and that becomes because nobody pays attention to that interaction between Glaucon and Socrates, or really understands the importance of that in in the rest of the dialogue. But what he does, Socrates doesn't say, "Well, I can't work with you if you're going to be like that." Sorry, I can't work with you, and they walk away. What he says is, "Okay." This is where you are. Let's see if we can give you, if we can get you started. And if we can get you started, maybe you'll keep taking steps. And so that, that makes a lot of sense because the thing is, what, what Miller is doing, I think, is he's saying, we got to be realistic here. <laughs> if I just come and say, everyone needs to sell everything they have, give it to the poor, and then go meditate on a river. I'm mixing a whole bunch of different religions. <laughs> Everyone's going to be like, okay, well, that's a stupid book. You know, there might be three people who go to a sweat tent down in Arizona and die. But for the most part, people aren't going to be aren't going to care about what he has to say. And that's part of the empirical evidence and so on and so forth. Those all tie together, I think. Like this actually has a positive effect in the in the way that the modern life is lived. And therefore, you know, there's some sort of uh, this is usable. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, in the same way that I I. My, my kids are young enough that for the most part, I do a lot of rewards and punishments, you know, the, 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 but as they grow older, the goal isn't to just keep using rewards and punishments, but to get them to, to try and see that why this, this is a good thing, uh, not just the reward, but to see the, the good in the actions itself and, and the, the negative and the negative actions themselves. Um, but that they're, but until they get to a certain point, you, you, you it's, it's, it's not necessarily pointless, but it's not going to produce a lot of f- good fruit to focus on that if they haven't started down the road. And, and so, uh, you know, g- just like we said, you know, with chapter two, Miller had to, was giving a case for, well, why should we care about our character? And, and, you know, to, to us and to, you know, hopefully, you know, to, to, I think a lot of our listeners, that's not, a question we're all that concerned about because that that that's already clear to us. Similarly, he's saying to those of you who are who I've just now convinced that character matters, that you should care about your character. What are what are those baby steps you got to take to get going down? And I'm 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 going to give you feed you rewards. I'm going to feed you punishments. I'm going to 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 try and and get the put those crumbs out there for you to start going down that path in hopes that you're going to see the value of the path itself, not 
the the the, the rewards and and punishments. Now, here's a problem with our conversation, but we're out of time. Even though maybe you can sum this up in a minute. What would we add to this? I mean, because the book's great. You should read the book because he talks about different methods that actually help and all this other kind of stuff. And some that are less promising, but yet can probably be used on a, on an individual basis, but but have, have some tricky elements to it. Read through the last part of the book. It's, it's very interesting, particularly if you're, if you're like, if you have children or something and you want something to, if you want to help them develop a better character. But we've been talking about seeing the good as seeing the good as truly good or truly beautiful. And, you know, and so we've been talking about that sort of thing. Do you have a particular strategy in mind for developing the eyes to see the good as good? I mean, you've mentioned this a little bit in Pat. We've, we've kind of, we've touched on this a little bit, but if you're going to sum it up, because I'm not a very good person. So we need someone who actually has some virtue to say it. I'm I'm not sure I'm the uh, the person to say that then, but the the there's a sense of learning to uh, go beyond just the the uh, rewards, the punishments, the the actions themselves. Just like a great musician practices scales, but the goal isn't practicing scales for the sake of becoming really good at doing scales. It's to have that under under wraps so well that you don't have to think about those movements. You can you can express the the, the music, or or an athlete who who does the drills not because you do those things in the game, but because those give the foundation to the things that you need to be able to do. So you can so that you don't have to think about those things, and you can can look at a bigger picture. That's that's the short answer to to Travis's excellent question. It, uh, is is we we need to get to the point where we can look up, you know, from you know the the person learning to dance looks down at their feet until they feel comfortable enough that they can look and see what's going on around them. We've got to get past the point where we stop looking at our feet. But for most of us, getting on the dance floor is the first step, and 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 we got to become comfortable with with the actions so that we can move beyond the actions to to what the actions are pointing us to the problem is most of us feel the actions are difficult enough and and require enough effort that we're we're years into our journey towards character and we're still looking at our feet trying to figure out how how to do the dance moves right and let me let me give let me give a very let me give a specific example that may be useful as well and this is just um, this is, I mean, the, the, the law and the prophets are summed up in love your neighbor as yourself and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And those are really tied together. Those are commands that are really tied together. And I've thought about this a lot. What does it take to love a person, a, a person that you don't know? And we've talked about this. You have to go a little, quite a ways back in our podcast to find it. We've talked about this where if you're really going to see someone correctly and love them, you have to engage the imagination. If you're just looking at what you can see, all you see really is a body that's either in your way or useful to you or to be ignored. Those are the three options. But if you engage your imagination, it becomes a lot more complex. So as a very practical, straightforward example, if you're, if you're having trouble loving the people around you, like I do when I'm driving, 
<laughs> a, a useful a useful tool that I've seen more than one person use, and it's not by a Christian. In fact, he seems somewhat I don't know if critical of Christianity in this in this pot in this in this video, but or this talk. But if you look up on YouTube a video by uh, called "This Is Water." By David Foster Wallace. I think it's got some bad language in there. You know, if you can hand, if you can't handle it, then don't, don't watch it. There's a couple bad words, but the point is, what he says is like what he tries to express is the frustration of everyday life, the busy, just nasty, kind of empty busyness of everyday life, and how everybody's in your way and stupid, and they're gross and they're annoying and blah blah, you know, whatever. And then he starts talking about. How would I engage my imagination in relating to these people? And it leads to the point where you're like, you're basically in tears. You're like, this is incredible. And it's what he's saying isn't, doesn't mean that you've now acquired truth about this person's life, but you've acquired a truth about the person. Now, because he says, imagine somebody's, you know, people in your way and they're, they're having trouble. Just start imagining what they may have gone through, why they're in the situation they're in. And once you do that, it doesn't give you access to information about their life. You only know that by interacting with them. And it may not be true. They may just be annoying schmucks like the rest of us. But as soon as you do that, you're shifting out of what he calls your default mode and you're engaging your imagination and you start being filled with this wonder of the people around you. And that, while again, you may not have accurate information about their lives, you do have a clearer understanding of the person before you and it's hard not to love the person if you start seeing them this way it at yeah. least becomes a richer way of looking at it and so this is that's just a very practical example i would i would suggest i mean i try to watch that thing like once a year it's like a renewing my vows sort of thing <laughs> except doesn't like that but it's a very useful thing to just look at that consider what he has to say and realize oh oh yeah yeah this I need to renew my vision. I need to have, I, I have eyes, but do they see? I have ears, but do they hear? Right? That sounds sort of biblical. Again, and then practice that. And as you practice it, it becomes a norm. Right? Because I'm not punished for thinking bad thoughts about the person in front of me who's driving slow or driving badly or the person behind me is riding my tail. I'm not punished for that. I can be punished if I slam on my brakes or whatever, but but uh, but I'm not punished for for thinking bad thoughts. But it does undermine my joy. It makes me a miserable person. It makes it 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 corrupts moment times when I could be having a good conversation with my family, showing love to my kids or my wife, or just enjoying the music or whatever. It corrupts it. It it infects it with this nastiness and takes away the gratitude and sense of joy that I can have in life. But if I start being filled with an imagination of the possibilities of the person before me, so that I show them charity and love, then suddenly I the world is transformed. I see things differently. And that I think is the grounding for a good character, mm -hmm. but it takes work. It takes practice. Yeah. It and, and, and it's not going to happen overnight, but you can start taking small steps. I mean, one thing that one verse in the Bible that has really stood out to me as I work to improve my character, especially as I relate with other people is you know, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. So if it's against, if, 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 the, if it's got flesh and blood, if it's a human person, they're not your enemy. And so if you go into, if you live your life looking that people are not your enemy, but they're, they're, 
they're somehow connected to you. They're on your team. Maybe they've been captured by the enemy, but they're they're not the enemy themselves. It changes how you relate to people. It, you start giving people the benefit of the doubt because just like in sports, your team never commits the penalty. It's always the other guys or the bad refs. Same thing with with this with with your neighbor, with the, the people you you encounter, the human beings. And if we can t- start to to take those steps, remembering that the goal isn't to just get really good at at you know making up things or imagining things about other people, but but what that does to our our perceptions, we start down the road to care. Sounds good. All right, I'm done. This is Travis. This is Joel. Have a great day. Thanks for listening.